Okay, uh, America's Elite, five, six, seven, eight, backup slate. Live from the Talking Joe Studios, it's Talking Joe. G.I. Joe, the very best, America's Elite. Eliter than all the rest, trained to have no flaws. Defending liberty across the land, valor oversized. Bring out that big brass band, real heroes verified. Gotta read them all, you must agree. Elitist in history, yeah, Oh, there could be no end in a world we must defend. A courageous crew. Their colors red, white, and blue. Mess with them and they'll shoot you. G.I. Joe. Gotta read them all. Gotta read them all. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. Now, if you are new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website. That website is talkingjoe.co.uk. Today, we are continuing our look at the disavowed era with G.I. Joe America's Elite issues five through to eight. So these were published by Devil's Due, November 2005 to February 2006. Crikey, five years in now. And uh, this is the continuation of the Joe Casey run with the concluding issues from Stefano Caselli on interiors. Uh, for those reading along in collected editions, this is collected uh, across the 2006 editions from uh, Devil's Due, America's Elite Trade Paperback 1, The Newest War, which covers 0 to 5, and Volume 2, Ties That Bind, which covers 6 through 12, and the reprinted IDW versions, America's Elite Volume 1, which had 0 through 6, and Volume 2, which had 7 through 12. Now, without further ado, Reek Petit, the elitist co-host you ever want to meet. It's a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing well. One of these issues on the inside front cover, uh, inside back cover, in fact, has a uh, a thank you. Uh, the inside back cover to issue seven that we're talking about in mm-hmm. this episode uh, has a thank you letter from... Uh, it's a, you know, it's a, from all of us at Devil's Due Publishing. Thank you for five years. And then it's, uh, it's signed by all the staff and it, uh, I think it is a Photoshop job, but it's meant to look like a piece of paper with print and then signatures on a wooden desk top. Indeed. So yeah, Devil's Due would like to thank us for supporting them over the past five years. So actually a, a, a footnote to our coverage of these, uh, issues five through eight is that in the back of these issues, back of issue five and back of issue six, there is a backup story called The Past Comes Back, which is uh, written by Josh Blaylock, uh, all about Zartan, and that's why Zartan features on the front cover. We will cover that another episode because it, it is uh, sort of running 
uh, to the side of this main story. And so uh, for our laser focus, we're going to focus on the uh, Joe Casey written issues here, but we will circle back to those. Don't you worry. Now, Tim, uh, you might be, may be interested to know that on the Facebook page, I asked our listeners what they th remembered thinking about the launch of the America's Elite series back in the day. And I was inundated with answer. <laughs> Just joking. I was inundated with three responses. <laughs> uh, so um, Bart Simon had this to say. Let me let me see if I can put my best Bart voice on. Don't have a cow, dude. Uh, no, wrong Bart. Um, I was hoping it would be better than what we had before. It kind of started that way, but got stale fast. And uh, Sam Sears said... While I liked Joe Casey's other work, it seemed obvious that he hadn't read what Joe was writing. I didn't want to see the stools dropped. Uh, that is referring to uh, the Stool Brothers, not any sort of toilet humour there. Uh, and I already thought that killing Lady J was the wrong call. The new uniforms looked terrible in design, despite having some awesome art. Uh, we also got a voicemail in from Rusty Shackleford, who had this to say. Hey, Mark. Hey, Tim. This is Rusty from San Francisco. I love the podcast, and I really appreciate the work you guys put into it. Regarding America's Elite, it's a series that I didn't pick up when it first came out, um, and I'm not even sure if I knew it was coming out. I'd gotten out of collecting comics for a little while, and then once I got older and my life kind of stabilized again, I went back and filled in the holes in my collection, and I'm sure I've read them, and probably read them not too long ago, but I really don't remember much about them. But you guys always have such good insights that I'm really looking forward to cracking open my magazines and read along with the podcast. Thanks so much again for your time. Hope you guys are well, and I can't wait to hear the next episode. Thank you, Rusty. Uh, good to hear from a listener that we've not heard from before, I think. Um, so um, if, like Rusty, you want to send us a voice note, you can find that facility via the website, talkingjoe.co.uk. Scroll to the bottom and you can leave us a voice message letting us know what you think of the issues as we're reading them or indeed what you think of the job we are doing. All positive messages will be kept <laughs> and included. So, Tim, let's talk about the issues uh and the creative team we've got more from joe casey as the writer art is stefano caselli uh apart from issue five which is nelson blake the second and john lowe on inks for that uh, issue five and i think we, we might also have some sneaky uh uncredited assistants in in the in series as well maybe we'll talk about that later the colors are a mixture here we've got Kendrick Lim of ILS on five and six and seven and Daniele Rudoni on eight. Lettering is from Steve Seeley and Brian J. Crowley and it is all edited by Mike O'Sullivan. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Okay, Tim, it feels like we've, we're in a privileged position of having just one cover per issue on these, which makes for a much simpler review of them. Uh, do you want to talk us through the uh, the covers and, and your thoughts on them? 
Sure. I want to uh, just point out that I think the cover to issue five is uh, a colorist Dave McKegg's first and maybe only G.I. Joe contribution. Uh, Dave McKegg has the distinguishment of being my favorite color artist in comics. Oh, wow. And he is known these days uh, for coloring The Walking Dead as the twice-monthly Walking Dead Deluxe. Uh, he colored uh, a really great year on New Avengers uh, around Secret Invasion when he was coloring uh, Francis Lennell Yu's uh, art on that book in, what was that, 2008. Uh, I first noticed him in comics coloring some Darth Maul uh, for Dark Horse. He colored uh, Low for uh, Rick Remender uh, and uh -huh. Greg Tuccini at uh, Image. Uh, and, and he has worked for all the publishers. He's worked for... Uh, on various image books he's worked he's done some marvel stuff and sometimes it's sort of random uh if if you are jonathan hickman fantastic four fans if you remember the cover to the first hickman issue of fantastic four which is an alan davis drawing dave mckeg colored that cover uh and i think he colored uh superman birthright which was that 12 issue anyway i'm spending a lot of time on uh, <laughs> uh anyway so um I, um, I'm very good at picking out his work when I'm looking at a catalog and I see covers very, very small nowadays. I will smile and say, hey, that's Dave McKegg. Um, and I didn't realize this was him uh, coloring the cover to issue five until I looked at the credits. And now that I know that I can kind of see it. Um, but anyway, um, okay, the cover to issue five is a, uh, is a uh, moody scene of menace and danger between uh, Zartan and Storm Shadow in the swampy woods. And I'm going to I'm going to bring out two examples in today's episode uh, to follow up on a comment I made in a previous episode where I said, Stefano Caselli's art is wonderful. I find some of his panel compositions are weak or awkward. And this covered issue five is my is one of my two examples for that, where I think the negative space is important because you need a sense of the trees and the sort of light coming in. But this cover is so vertical and it's so bisected, right? It's not like literally halfway on the left is Zartan and tree and halfway on the right is everything else. But it's pretty close. Zartan's arm is uh, sort of following the same vertical of the tree and uh, sort of Zartan's like standing angle matches Storm Shadow's standing angle. So I really want something to be diagonally from bottom left to top right, you know, like in a uh, northeasterly direction. Anyway, so good cover, not a great cover. The thing that I noticed about issue five was in part because of the way I've got these bound with the uh, into a custom binding is that the preview of next issue in the back of issue four versus the published cover on issue five is that they it has been flipped as a mirror image so in uh in the this sort of the initial preview uh zartan is on the right of the image whereas here he's on, on the left and, interesting uh, so i won i wonder how it was drawn originally yeah i i think i think whether it's left right or right left i think the compositional issues are still there but that's that's a fun detail thank you for it's also yeah me. it's also got a crop on it actually looking at it as well the the uh the published version for five is uh is is significantly zoomed in versus um the previous one i'm gonna come back to that okay the cover to issue six 
is a wraparound cover, and I'm a big fan of wraparound covers because you get more bang for your buck. It means the publisher can't put an ad, whether it's for them or they're actually selling that space for some outside product uh, on the back cover. The This wraparound cover is previewed on the last page of issue five, and mm. I think it looks better when it's very small because uh, Caselli has drawn a very cool, muscular, tight clothing attitude <laughs> snake eyes um and you can't see it but the way that he's holding his sword with his left hand the one that's cropped must be very cool because of how the angle of the sword comes back in so snake eyes looks great on the back cover uh destro looks good uh he is cropped at the wrist which if i'm remembering my bart sears brute and babe how to draw comics uh articles from wizard magazine in the 90s uh, is a no-no but also uh to listener Bart's comments. I don't, I don't love this costume for Destro, but I, I talked about costumes a lot in a previous uh, episode. The thing that doesn't work about this uh, cover for me is that Scarlet, A, it's a little hard to tell who it is because though she has red hair and sort of yellowish, uh, a yellowish costume, she's knocked back uh, with sort of some translucent aqua as if she's underwater too the way that this background is underwater the way that they're not actually in front of a giant window uh, or like portal you know on the submarine uh this cover is something of a montage but the effect here is they're all sort of in the water and since her hair doesn't quite read as red and her uniform doesn't quite read as yellow she only kind of reads as scarlet um mm. but the thing that really jumps out for me is that she was drawn at a smaller size and blown up in, let's say, Photoshop. And so I start to see a lot of sort of scratchiness in her eyelashes and uh, that one strand of hair over her eye on the back cover. And, you know, this is certainly like a good graphical solution, you know, resizing things, but when there's an inconsistency and something is definitely, definitely shrunk or enlarged, uh, it starts to look like it's following different rules for me and it's uh, distracting. So I, I do like the idea of this cover, um, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, if I was Hazard, I guess all, all three of these characters were probably drawn independently and then photoshopped together. So there's probably a version of that Destro and Snake Eyes where where you see the, uh, the full extremities of their yeah. both hands. Yeah. Um and this is a double sized spectacular as as advertised on the front with this uh with this wraparound cover. Tim, why do you think they would single out issue six of America's Elite as being a special? Well, I, we need to go to the previous issue, because issue five is also double sized. And on the bottom of the cover above the UPC barcode oh, yes. it says 48 pages. And uh, so this was actually sort of, I thought, maybe our second uh, topic that we would get to after uh, the covers, because the fact that issues five and six are both double-sized is its own uh, note of interest. So you want to talk about the double-sized thing, or should I should I roll my eyes at the cover to seven? <laughs> we, well, I was just going to, I was just... We can talk about the, you know, the nature of the double sizedness in a in a bit, but I was just going to speculate that I think possibly the reason they've done it 
is that we had 43 issues of the G.I. Joe title pre-launch. We had an issue zero and then six more issues, which if you do the maths, adds up to 50. So this is issue 50 of the unnumbered G.I. Joe from Devil's U. Interesting, the legacy numbering, to use that term that Marvel and maybe DC use these days. Uh, I hadn't thought of it that way. It might be a coincidence, but that 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 would be my speculation at any rate. Uh, well, we're we're in it, so we'll just talk about this topic, and then I'll roll my eyes at the cover to seven. <laughs> um, Blaylock writes the backup in five and six, and so I, I this is sort of a que- this is an open question, you know, because we noted that Blaylock was involved in some of the Brandon Jurwa stories. Mm. In, at the, in the second half of the Brandon Jurawa run. So is Blaylock sort of flexing his muscles as publisher? And this is certainly a, a, a smoother way of doing it, that Joe Casey can keep writing his own story in the front of the book, and that's why people are buying it. And Blaylock wants to do something with Dreadnoughts because he likes Dreadnoughts. Uh, I also wondered, does this have to do with the five-year anniversary that they're sort of the publisher, not Blaylock as the sort of positioned publisher, but Devils do as the company, or is it flexing its muscles uh, the way that, you know, you you get to issue 25 or, you know, 25th anniversary and you do a a special. Um, It is remarkable to me that a comic would have sort of for no immediately obvious reason, a double-sized issue at issue five or a double-sized issue at issue six, and then both. That's Mm. I think that's great. You know, I've I've said jokingly and seriously, I want G.I. Joe to be published twice a month and I want double-sized issues and I want <laughs> special one-shots and side miniseries. Um, so I think at the time I was I was thinking all other things being equal. Oh, cool. Um, I think at the time I, this was where I was starting to step, I was thinking about stepping away from this series again. So these double-sized issues weren't enough to keep me. But it's, it's you know, every time you do a double-sized issue, I think the editor or the publisher worries that the higher cover price will keep a few people away. And if someone was looking for a reason to jump off, they will. And certainly crossovers, issue number ones, um, anniversary issues, you know, Wolverine 50, you know, by Larry Hama and Mark Silvestri with like a cover enhancement or, you know, that's from the 90s or Action Comics 1000 from a couple years ago, you know, with like... 10 variant covers and it's a $10 comic and it's like triple or quadruple sized and that's a big deal. A lot of people swoop in to sample that. Who's going to swoop in to sample the G.I. Joe relaunch five months in? It's like, oh, this is $4.50. Um, so um, I think it's cool. I think it's weird. I think it's risky. All right. Covered issue seven. I don't know who this is. I think it's Shipwreck, <laughs> but I actually... Ooh. Is it Roadblock? I don't know. I was when I was looking at it, I was thinking Roadblock, but now you say Shipwreck, I'm I'm not so sure. Doesn't the maybe. facial hair more match Shipwreck? Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe. Okay, so this cover, there's a Joe in scuba gear, but it's not wetsuit or torpedo. So even though this person has facial hair, so it could only be half the Joes, in effect it could be anyone. Okay, so they're turning at us because there's something looming. So there's this big hand that's taking up the bottom 40% of the cover. And it's sort of robotic because it's got screws where the knuckles are. And 
It's uh, purple and blue, and it's sort of reaching at the Joe's shoulder, but not actually touching because it seems like it's it hasn't made contact yet. And then the Joe's hand is also, this is sort of the bottom right of the corner, is sort of up and reacting. And then in, the, in a reflection on the Joe's uh, clear uh, face mask is sort of a very small menacing head silhouette with two glowing eyes. So I think that's, quote, us. That's the character that's grabbing for Roadblock or Shipwreck. And then behind Roadblock or Shipwreck are uh, one, two, three, four, five, six plus a few more that you can't quite see, sort of uh, slightly out of focus, uh, hazy. They've been knocked back with atmospheric perspective. There's blue mixed in, so they they look further away. I know, I've read the story, so I know that it's these robot iron grenadiers based on their silhouettes. But this cover, to me, has always been unsatisfying because the menacing hand that's coming in isn't quite grabbing it's not like it's it's holding on to the the air hose it's not like it's tugged out the air hose it's not like it's holding a weapon it's not like it's a fist it's not like it's uh grabbing with like sharp you know fingernail fingertip spikes or anything it's grabbing but it hasn't grabbed and Mm. so as a as a as a menacing uh sort of anatomical prop hand it's sort of like 60% of the way there. Again, I don't know which Joe this is. And then the background characters are underdrawn or they've been drawn a certain way and then the coloring is sort of over... over. Anyway, I, have, I find this cover overall to be underdrawn and mm. uh, underconsidered. And it's too bad because if you spelled this out for me in a sentence or it was three bullet points... You know, like underwater, Joe reacting in surprise. We're the villain. Other villains looming in the background. I'd say, oh, that's awesome. But the elements do not come together. And it's too bad because maybe my favorite kind of Joe cover is like, you know, heightened moment of Joe in danger or, you know, like bursting out at bursting out at ya. You know, the, the cover to 48, <laughs> whenever I see it, I always go, oh, I was wince a little because Zartan looks so in control and evil and the tension with his head and his eyes and his body and his neck and gung-ho's face and gung-ho's hand and the angle <laughs> like the whole thing's at a dutch angle right the 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 walls behind them are not straight up and down and so uh these two covers stefano caselli america's elite seven mike zach gi joe real american hero 48 they're not an equal comparison but there's actually a lot in common and one of them punches me in the gut a lot more did you notice, Tim, the on the inside front cover, the, the credits that were noted for this cover to, to number seven? Uh, Stefano Caselli and IFS. Oh, graphic design by Evan Salt, assistance by Sean Dove. Tim Seeley lent a hand to the cover. Uh, that feels like an inside joke, like Tim Seeley posed his hand and someone took a photo of it for Stefano Caselli to draw. That's my guess on that one. Memories are, are, are hazy, but the thought, as as per the After Action Report Volume Two, uh, which is an excellent resource for all things Devil's Due, the the thought is that Tim Seeley actually drew the hands for for this. So so, my guess is that they felt that somehow the original version was lacking something a little, 
and that that grabbing hand might just add in a little bit more drama. And so huh. Tim Seeley is the uh, the staff, uh, you know, art this director, art assist guy. Um, or did he do the in. layout? Because that hand looks like a Stefano Caselli hand. Doesn't look like a Tim Seeley hand to the extent that I can differentiate their styles. Um, I would, I would, I would defer to hazy recollections in After Action Report. <laughs> the cover to issue eight, as with the cover to uh, which uh, to five, the cover to issue eight is also cropped and zoomed in. You can see a fuller body version of the cover to issue eight, which is a white background with Storm Shadow looking badass, just standing there. Oh, on the excuse me, on the back cover to seven. Uh, you see all the way down to his hands and uh, sort of his uh, mid thigh. And the actual cover to eight has been zoomed in and cropped. So it's just uh, head and shoulders, chest, and um, some of his uh, um, abdomen. And uh, oh, hey, it's that sword that you can order. Remember that? Remember, was it uh, uh, in America's Elite uh, Zero, the 25 cent issue? There was an ad for this. A company that was making a prop snake eyes and a prop storm shadow sword and you sent me uh, yeah, a his tank right. a his tank link to an old thread where someone had pulled a couple photos from an old or maybe then concurrent ebay listing and i'm jumping ahead here but uh when Sno- snake eyes and storm shadow are fighting in this story they're using those two swords yeah from uh it was on yeah issue zero the back back uh, the back, back cover, cover okay uh, atlanta cutlery and yes. and interestingly, actually, in the preview image on the back cover, he's holding the sword, and um, on the zoomed published oh. front cover, it's on his back. Oh, right, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they must have thought, well, if it's if it's him and there's no sword on the cover to eight, Tim Finn will think that it's Arctic Firefly, <laughs> because Tim is always getting confused with. Uh, snake eyes and storm shadow and firefly costumes when it's like in the shadows but if we put a sword there tim finn will definitely know that it's storm shadow especially if it's the sword that uh fans okay that was a joke okay um anyway so the cover to eight um uh it's okay uh it's it's a cool drawing uh the zoom in and crop doesn't doesn't do any uh, you know damage to it. it's not like so zoomed in that the lines are getting really really scratchy the white background that sort of overwhelms any outer outlines on Storm mm. Shadow is really dramatic. It feels like yeah. he's standing in front of, you know, like the sun in the Arctic Circle or like a very, very bright computer screen. So we've got a little bit of this whiteout effect. And yet the front of him is not all in shadow. So he's he's also he's front lit and he's backlit. As a as a cover that makes me want to buy the issue, yes. As a cover that makes me want to buy the issue and is teasing the contents, no. Because it's just a cool guy standing there. <laughs> True. Uh and if if I if I if I want that, I'll buy any Marvel comic published between two thousand one and two thousand four. I just noticed across these four issues covers as well that on none of them the Joes are brandishing weapons or guns. In Aha. Fact. So to uh, to talk to that point that uh, Hasbro were pushing back on guns appearing on the covers, the, for these four issues certainly uh, that seems to be borne out. Aha. 
Okay, let's uh, remind ourselves of the story of these four issues, shall we, with a plot breakdown. Plot breakdown. In the aftermath of the defeat of Vance Wingfield, the Joe team is in disarray. Duke is missing on a mysterious mission in South America. Scarlet is missing too, held captive on Destro's submarine. Flint is in an emo pit of grief. Shipwreck is suspicious of Storm Shadow. And Stalker is getting grief of his own, this time from Colton, who doesn't have any confidence in his team and is more than willing to give them a good shouting. Scarlet has got some secret trackers implanted under her skin and she's been traced back to an empty patch of ocean. Unfortunately, the president says that a rescue mission is a no-go from those yojos. So the Joes take some leave for an unofficial independent operation. Uh, they get on a bus and go to spring... Oh no, hold on, wait, wrong comic. <laughs> Alexander, aka Destro Jr., attempts to kill the imprisoned Scarlet, who breaks free just as the Joe team arrive to rescue her. As they are overwhelmed, Destro sets a self-destruct sequence for his submarine. In the bow, where water has begun flooding in, Snake Eyes traps himself using a manual lever to seal the doors. Later, at a Japanese naval base, a seemingly deceased Snake Eyes is laid out on a slab, and fingers are pointed as to where the mission went so wrong. Scarlet cries and Flint gives some really encouraging words of consolation. Kamakura arrives, hoping that Snake Eyes has cheated death using the Sleeping Phoenix technique. Could these suspicions be right when they find that his body is missing? And elsewhere, in the Amazon, Duke finds a giant industrial complex defended by some junky bats. He says to them, take me to your leader. So there we go, lots of stuff happening and condensed into that plot uh, briefing. Um, I feel like for this one, maybe before we get too far deep into things, uh, let's make sure that we say something nice. Well, I done read a heck of a lot of comics. Some of them are great, the team are all on it, but some are a bit cack. They really are whack. Before the nitpicks come out, I'm giving it my bestest And nothing's gonna stop me from trying to be positive So I'll pause my scorn To put up two thumbs And turn my frown upside down Take advice, it cannot wait Say something nice got something nice to say about these four issues yeah caselli's art is still really sexy and exciting and modern in a way that gi joe comics hadn't had uh there's there's a heft to how he draws people their their faces their bodies their hands their lips their their costumes their poses so even though i have sometimes some complaints about aspects of his work. It's like meaty and sexy. Mm -hmm. And for sort of the superhero 
take or the the broader action take on G.I. Joe. I think Casey makes a really exciting story. I think you and I will get into why it may not work for us as Joe fans, but I I think I can see if I wasn't a Joe fan or if I had if I liked G.I. Joe but sort of hadn't read the comics. If someone handed me America's Elite and and the letters page somewhat bears this out. There's some excited people writing into the letters page. Um, I think I would find these to be really exciting comics. Yeah, I think I would uh, agree with that. I mean, Stefano Caselli does uh, a great job and and some of those action sequences he he does. And, the, you know, the, particularly as you pointed to before, the expressions on, on their faces is, is very exciting. It is, you know, does feel like a big blockbuster action film in in parts, a lot of high drama. Having the uh, having the smaller cast, you know, definitely does allow for for the writer to to zoom in and explore that cast in a little more little bit more detail. Each one of the cast members has got something going on, um, and you can't necessarily say that an awful lot of times about GI Joe comics because of the size of the cast. A lot of times, people are just you know uh, relegated somewhat to the background, or if they are indeed. Cool. I'll say one more nice thing if you if you're if you're done. Yeah. For having a fill-in artist this soon into the series, Nelson Blake the second does uh does a, a great job. His stuff uh it, it doesn't have sort of quite the same like heaviness and thickness and roundness and sexiness of Caselli, but his whole issue, issue five. Uh, it looks good. He's a he's a pretty good match, you know. And all if, with all the artists out there with all the different styles, you know, he's not he's not similar to Caselli, but he's more similar than dissimilar. Uh, and he does he does a great job on his issue. So uh, while I'm always disappointed by uh, fill-ins, fill-ins during a, a beloved artist's run, a fill-in sort of sort of quote too soon. I think editorial did a, a good job picking him. And uh, and if I can transition into talking about him for a moment, I can give a tiny bit of additional info on him. Yeah, let's let's do it. That was actually going to be if I was going to make a second, say something nice. I was I was said something almost identical to what hmm. what you were going to say, Tim. The the reason I didn't <laughs> was because I was going to say I think you know I think he did a decent job as a a fill-in artist. I was expecting the reply to be no. He's awful. <laughs> what are you talking about? And um, then we'd start getting in a whole different direction. So so well, I'm, I'm glad so, that. So the question I had when I got, so, you know, I sit down to read these four issues and I'm not reading issue five moments after reading issue four. That was for a previous episode. That was, you know, some weeks ago. And so I was coming into G.I. Joe kind of fresh, having not read G.I. Joe for a while. And I thought, I thought, I wonder what would have happened if Blake had drawn the whole series you know like if casello if caselli was only going to stick around for eight issues over nine months you know it's like if he wasn't going to stick around to the extent that one would want some uh, a longer run by an artist who could stick around for longer how would i have felt how would everyone have felt if it had only been nelson blake the second from the beginning and uh, maybe issue zero and one wouldn't have hit with the same exciting and sexy punch but you know he he can do the work it's it is not as exciting but issue five looks good uh, i don't know if it looks amazing but it looks good 
and we'll and we will be seeing more of him from issue nine onwards. So it's not the last we've seen of Nelson Blake. Right, uh, Nelson Blake uh, has has been uh, at several places in comics the last. 10, 15 years, uh, he drew the uh, 2017 Luke Cage series for Marvel. It was written by David F. Walker. Uh, he drew a Miles Morales Spider-Man annual in 2018. Uh, he drew a uh, creator-owned series. I, I'm pretty sure it's creator-owned at Image in 2016 called Romulus. And uh, he's done you know, smaller projects and short stories or fill-ins here and there as well. Uh, and as you say, uh, he'll he'll come back to the world of G.I. Joe. Caselli uses a lot of medium and thick lines, both as exterior outlines and also just sort of anywhere there's a line. Caselli will pencil and ink thick lines. And uh, Nelson is drawing with almost exclusively thin lines but you know his acting uh, is good and his compositions are good everything's clear that's safe sort of flicking between the two much more sort of know, grounded uh, almost sort of slightly more realistic in some ways whereas caselli is is sort of more in the superhero vein where everyone is very muscular uh, everything is very dramatic um, yeah caselli is exaggerating more and if if i was to make uh, a comparison to the other long-running G.I. Joe series, I might say that what Nelson Blake II is doing for his G.I. Joe is more akin to what uh, Shannon Gallant does with his 90-some issues of G.I. Joe at IDW, where his storytelling is sort of old-fashioned and clear. Uh, there's a lot of sort of I don't want to say straight on shots, but he's very aware of sort of the up and down and left and right of the rect of the rectangle as a as a panel as a compositional um, element. And Stefano Caselli, his art is more exaggerated, and um, he's dealing more with sort of curves and rounded shapes and like twisting of uh, of torsos, and feels a little bit more like you know Phil Gozier. Uh, who drew the final like ten months of of GI Joe at um, uh, at Marvel, where that is more superhero influenced? Mm. I I'll just linger on a particular story point, if you will, Tim, which is we talked about like his the clarity of Nelson Blake's art, and there was a, there was a moment for me that was relatively confusing, and this was the transition to the Baroness flashback which for me sort of didn't start off well because the, there isn't anything that immediately tells us it's a flashback until at the end of the sequence she wakes up with a no, realising it's all a dream or, or a memory. So the transition into the sequence is a little bit confusing. Is it is it present day? It doesn't have like the, the rounded corners or the different colouring or, or an introduction which tells us where, where we are. And the Baroness is getting on into, I think, into a Night Raven through the back and once she's in the back it kind of looks a little bit like a factory or something it's a bit doesn't necessarily make you think oh yeah that's definitely the back of a of a plane it takes off the engines boom and she falls over there's a message from cobra commander that seems to be pre-recorded and talk about the the remote control plane which is, is you know going to explode and she 
climbs a ladder, I think, and and I believe that what she's doing is actually climbing from the back of the Night Raven up this ladder to the secondary kind of vehicle. The drone that sits the on drone. top of it? Yeah, is, is it called the drone? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know what? Uh, th- this this is not presented clearly. <laughs> right, because on page nine, the second page of this two-page bareness scene, in panel three, now that you've said all this, I realize what's happening on the left is the Night Raven is exploding and the drone is getting away and yeah. twisting, spinning. But I actually sort of thought it was, you know, like when Spider-Man's like swinging, sometimes an artist draws him three times, you know, like yeah. in, in, yeah, yeah. in different moments of the movement, like an animator would. And it's the, the final one might be drawn and colored like fully opaque, but the other two are with thinner lines or they're sort of transparent or they're just white. I sort of thought that's what was happening here. I sort of thought, oh, the raven is on the left and it's also shooting forward on the right. But you are correct. That's not the raven. That's the drone. Uh, If this is the night raven, which is a signature Cobra vehicle that has a second vehicle on it, this doesn't look like any night raven we've ever seen. And my knowledge of the toy line around 2005 is not great. But I'm pretty sure that they didn't, A, re-release the Night Raven, B, make a new thing and call it the Night Raven that still had a secondary vehicle. Um, And yes, you're right. On page eight, panel three, when the Baroness is walking through what looks like a factory uh, or like a Cobra base, you don't get the sense that she's inside any kind of plane. And um, this is is the sequence, this is kind of looking at the sequence from... Uh, issue 39 where baroness is originally seen to be blowing up in what is more clearly a night raven in that sequence so that helps that was kind of the thing that informed me as to this is a night raven and therefore that that's the the drone on top um I, it was only really when i look back at that that how it was shown in issue 39 that made me join the the dots actually and there's another weird thing which is where on the very first panel of this sequence, there's two people walking towards the plane, which is meant to be Baroness, and the clothes peg person there is uh, is meant to be Wraith. She's talking to him. James is a cursed pride. Doesn't he realize we don't need this Wraith? Wraith, where are you? And he's disappeared. And it's not clear at all as to where he's gone, why he's gone. And right. Not. I don't know that it's picked up anywhere else. Right. The scene's trying to have it both ways where this is supposed to be a surprise to the reader. We're not supposed to know that this is an imaginary scene, that this is a nightmare. We're supposed to think that this is real and not a flashback, that this is just happening. We're supposed to think, oh, wait, the Baroness has escaped? Oh, I got to keep reading to see what happens. Because if Joe Casey wanted to inform us that this was some kind of nightmare or flashback there would be something like there'd be a caption you know like you know two weeks ago or yeah uh, the the art style would be or the coloring or as you say the corners on the on the panels would be rounded which is the symbol for flashback that not everyone in comics uses there'd be some kind of you know tip and i think this is one of those cases where i think this may be one of those cases where People making comics are sort of thinking of movies and TV where you have additional cues like, you know, like, Mark, right now you're sitting in your room with some G.I. Joe books behind you. You've got headphones on. You're talking to a microphone. 
if this was a film or an episode of a show and this needed to start to turn nightmarish, I could do things with the music. I could do things with the color. I could like start to tilt or rotate the camera or like I could pull the camera back and zoom it in at the same time, which uh, creates the, the quote Hitchcock effect where the background behind you starts to like telescope or like the books are going to push out individually like they're haunted. I could do all these things, you know, like my voice starts to <laughs> turn, right? As the camera's tipping toward you and there's like an, a, an orange underlight on you and you're like, Tim, Tim. And then you hear like <laughs> fanciful carousel music or like a little girl singing twinkle, twinkle, little star, right? And it like goes out of tune. But nothing about this scene except for the hard sort of cut of no, you know, dream. And and you don't have like all the sound of the explosion and her screaming sort of stops or echoes or continues or crossfades or echoes in the in the prison, even though it's not a real sound that she'd be hearing in the prison. So yes, Nelson Blake the second does a good job uh drawing this issue. Um but this scene, um the the plane is weird and I think he and Joe Casey aren't using all the tools available to make this scene mm. clear. And back in issue 39, Destro sends Wraith and Baroness away before he faces Cobra Commander. He says, Wraith, the information you delivered us uh, delivered has brought us a great victory, but I have another task. Take the Baroness with you and don't let anything keep you from leaving. Protect her, Wraith. Do whatever it takes. So I guess uh, the expectation is that Wraith and Baroness went away together, both blew up in the plane, and and here it's showing that they did go away, but only Baroness got on the plane and, and blew up and, and something else happened to, to Wraith. So I guess there's probably still a mystery as to why Wraith didn't get on that plane and uh, and how he's been able to reconcile with Destro that fact can we put a pin in that? Because yeah. there is a scene where Destro is disappointed in Wraith in mm. these four issues, but it doesn't go as far as explaining no. where Wraith went, how he knew not to get on the plane, if Destro feels like, besides the sort of layer of, you were supposed to protect my wife, you didn't. It's like, wait, did you get away and you should have been able to warn her too? I'm really angry at you. <laughs> yeah. So let's put a pin in that in case later in the Joe Casey run, there's a there's a wraith explanation or flashback. Can I talk about the dialogue of that scene just while we're talking about it now? Yeah. Tell our listeners uh, in which of these four issues is that so scene? It was. Uh, it's in issue six, page uh, one, five, six. Page so six. It's, a, it's a good little bit of back and, back and forth. And it's it's somewhat, uh, it, it did sort of strike a chord with me uh, for not necessarily the right reason. Destro says, you have much to answer for. This is the why you remain in my employ. You may have a reputation, Wraith, but your value these days has more to do with that prototype stealth assault suit. However, to me, you are simply the man charged with the protection of my wife, a task that you have failed. My only failure, one I regret. I've told you before, it won't happen again. Of course not. Most of us are only allowed one death. <laughs> and, and in reading that just made me think, You've been you've been given a, a bit of a scolding there, Wraith. He's told that uh, that you were the man responsible for protecting Destro's wife. He thinks she's dead, and he's sort of keeping you on almost as repentance for for the failure of that and to make it up. And he so he's he said that you failed to keep my wife alive. And he said 
it won't happen again. That is not a good comeback. <laughs> um, I'm also, I'm not convinced that Destro would keep him around. I feel like Destro should be so angry or distraught that he would decidedly physically punish hmm. Rafe. Or if it's the suit that's so valuable, wouldn't Destro separate the guy inside the suit from the suit? Hmm. It's not like, I mean, G.I. Joe has a history of this where there's an important technical suit. Someone's <laughs> wandering, wandering around in it for 30 issues and no one knows it's them. I think it's the other guy. Anybody could be in that suit. So I, I feel like this. I feel like this scene doesn't hit the right note. That either Destro should react differently to this failure, or uh, there should be a better reason why he has to keep Wraith. Like for example, Destro, you can't get rid of me. The suit is keyed to my DNA and won't work for anyone else. Or mm. Destro, you, I'm, I'm your, I'm your other distant cousin. You know, like you kept Darklon and you're mad at him or, or <laughs> you know, something like that. Or, uh, you know, Destro, I've got a million dollars of yours in a bag hidden somewhere <laughs> and I won't give it back to you unless you let me stay in Destro. So, yeah. And at, at this point in time, Destro is is meant to think the Baroness is is dead. There's no, nothing uh, to indicate that he thinks she's anything but but dead and and seems to be acting somewhat unhinged and out of character and part of my quibble about about this sort of grander arc is is how destro is is acting and he's acting so differently i guess the no prize is is that um he's you know in grief and in madness and is acting out and, and lashing out at the world because uh, he believes his wife to be be dead i i think that Personally, I, I'm not too sure that rings quite right for me for the for the character. Um, that you know, there's been so much about Destro and hit this sort of strange code of honor that that he seems to to act with, and the the way that he behaves with Scarlet, and, and the way that he's worked with Wingfields to uh, launch attacks that have you know killed many civilians into uh, two cities, makes me think would the destro that i know have anything to do with uh, an activity like that i don't i feel not yeah i agree uh i i don't i don't agree with how destro is handled in this arc and should should we do broader topics or do you want to go to sort of issue by issue let's let's do let's go broader but let's just one last specific which is uh in this same same area there was a part in issue five where um, Destro is talking in the room where Scarlet is being held captive. And I've just found this this moment very weird and the dialogue from Destro very weird. He's looking at Scarlet sort of tied up and he says, So many options here, so many ways to soothe my turmoil. I don't know where to begin. Then he says later on, I will not be denied what is rightfully mine. And and just the that moment just sort of came across as being a little bit pervy, a little bit creepy. Is 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 he insinuating that uh, that you know he's going to have his way with this captive Scarlet? Did did you take that? Yeah. Did you take that same meaning? Yes. Um, I think part of what we're reacting to is the dialogue and also the two thirds page splash on the page turn. So you turn the page to thirteen. 
And Scarlet, she's not like sitting fully clothed in a jail cell. She's, you know, she's sort of in this like Vitruvian man uh, position. Mm. And like, yes, she's locked up. Yes, she's abs- her, her ankles and her wrists are shackled. But uh, she has a bare midriff for some reason. And I can't remember sort of what her costume was when she went missing in a previous issue. So she's barefooted and she's not wearing gloves. Like, okay. And she's got a bare, bare midriff. And then there are those three little things that doctors put on your chest when you're running on a treadmill for your annual physical. I don't know. I've, I've only seen that on TV or when, you know, Arnold Schwar- <laughs> when you're, when you're, uh, uh, Draco and Rocky Four and your, <laughs> yeah. your training or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Scarlet's pose here is too sexy for someone who is imprisoned, and this scene comes across as too much male gaze. So you have this helpless woman who is an attractive woman, right? Like everyone knows that Scarlet is an attractive character in the G.I. Joe universe, right? Baroness is attractive and she's got a bare midriff and she's wearing tight clothes and she's uh, her arms and legs are splayed. And so the visual here is whether on purpose or not suggestive. And, you know, one of the counters here is it's like, well, the reader is going to bring their own baggage to this. And that is often true, but Two out of two talking Joe readers uh, had a similar reaction to this scene, which is a very small sampling. And you could have Scarlet in uh, other clothes in a different position with her, you know, like hands or wrists uh, shackled in other ways. You could like just think if she were in the brainwave scanner, you know, like uh, or think of how the Baroness is portrayed in her imprisonment. Um, just a couple pages earlier, you know, she's in like a full orange prison jumpsuit and she's like, there's nothing sexy about Baroness waking up and then being in a bed in a jail cell. So yes, I think this scene with Destro and the Baroness hits the wrong note uh, for several reasons. And they all add up to being like disconcerting or distracting because what's really going on here is Destro is so angry. Scarlet is awake and he and Alexander don't know it. Like what we're supposed to be enjoying here is this expert hero or heroine who is probably going to get out because, you know, she's got a like a a hair clip, you know, that she's going to pick the lock with or she's going to like kick a viper in the face. And, you know, uh, and so, uh, yes, I don't love this scene. Um, all right, so my my comment for issue five overall is mm-hmm. uh, that it feels very much like a comic from 2005, 2006. And it doesn't feel like a Larry Hama G.I. Joe comic. And now that I've read a lot of Blaylock and Jurwa G.I. Joe comics, it doesn't feel like I don't have I don't have a great handle on how to describe those, but I, I certainly know when it's not them. Um, so issue five has this just pages and pages of talking at the beginning. And there yeah. is that exciting Baroness um, nightmare sequence where something happens, you know, plane takes off, someone's sort of kidnapped, there's an explosion. But otherwise, the first half of this issue is just talking. 
And some of it's dramatic talking, you know, like cleaning up a mission, uh, being at a cemetery, um, arguing with the boss, father, son, you know, weapons, armament, terrorist guys um, um, arguing. Um, but I couldn't help but th- particularly with with the Colton stuff, I couldn't help but think, man, cut this in half. Mm-hmm. And then um, my sort of small comment. So uh, Flint, I, th- I think what's starting to happen in this run is the leeway that I'm giving Joe Casey because he's done all this stuff before G.I. Joe that I like. And I think he's an interesting, smart writer. Uh, and I'm willing to let him do G.I. Joe his own way. I think that leeway is starting to run out because he's starting to do not one or two things sort of differently, but six or seven things. And it's starting to feel too far for me, like not G.I. Joe. So, you know, so Flint is talking at the cemetery and he, he pours out a bottle of uh, alcohol and I initially thought, wait, is Flint drinking now? And then I thought, no, 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 Hasra wouldn't have let that. I think that's that ceremonial act where you pour a bottle out, you know, at a funeral or a cemetery. But that doesn't really feel like G.I. Joe because no one in G.I. Joe has ever consumed alcohol, right? They've consumed Yojo Cola and grape soda. And on pages 19 and 20, the final panel of 19 and the top panel of 20, Duke on his mission in the in the jungle, he throws two grenades at the same time from one hand, and <laughs> and you would you would not see that in a Larry Hama GI Joe comic, and actually I don't think you'd see that in a Blaylock or Jurwa GI Joe comic, and so there are these moments where it's starting to feel more like a superhero book or an action book that's less specific to the sort of rules and uh, like feelings of, of G.I. Joe. Uh, and, you know, I, I say that understanding that G.I. Joe has cloning and brain scanners and ninja trances. And yet, yes, for me, um, throwing two grenades with accuracy, right? Maybe that's my problem, that it's it's like, no, no, you, I don't think you can do that. Um, I don't think you could even hold two grenades in your hand. So in terms of all the talking, I like the motivations and I like the worry. I like that there's, you know, tension and and sort of mistrust or distrust on the Joe team. I like that Destro and Alexander are are coming to blows, but I don't I don't like how it's happening or that it's it's hap- all these things are happening sort of s- slowly and too fast at the same time. I noticed one very specific thing in issue 5 <laughs> which was Around about page four, top of page four, there's a corridor where there's a, on the tannoy, stalker to General Colton's office, stalker to General Colton's office. And in the corridor on, on the right hand side, you see the back of someone's head and they've got a very specific plaster on the back of their neck and they've got their finger to their ear or maybe a phone to their, their By ear. By plaster, you mean uh, bandage, right? Bandaid. Yeah, a sticking blaster band-aid, yeah. And it's a bit like a, a Pavlov's gun moment where it's like so specific. It's like, what's what's that plaster? <laughs> what is that plaster there to be? Are we going to see this guy with the plaster again? And and it's not, it's just it's just a guy who's got a, a, a band-aid on the back of his neck. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, that was a real sort of pause moment of like, what what's that all about? Um, what's that? I, I had I, I had a... Something sort of like that. Uh, in in some of these scenes with Stalker Blake Nelson, this excuse me Nelson Blake the second, 
uh, is drawing the piping on Stalker's chest a certain way, but the green, the sort of the center stripe, the green doesn't agree with that piping. And I thought, come on, guys. <laughs> and that's all I have to say about uh, issue five. Uh, issue six is when on the insides, this is before the cover to eight or the cover to eight being previewed on the back cover to seven. Issue six is where I wrote, oh, hey, it's the Snake Eyes sword prop that was for sale. Oh, hey, it's the Storm Shadow sword prop that was for sale. Huh. They are using that on pages. They are using those on pages three and four. That's fascinating. <laughs> There's a weird moment, though, in that sword fight where the, the sort of the sword fight is concluded with Snake Eyes kind of besting Storm Shadow. But it's a kind of like weird sideways shuffle where he's pointing the sword at the side of Storm Shadow's neck, like almost like a sort of a, a bizarre sort of anime shuffle in from the side. Yeah, like a special move. Yeah, it's the top panel of page five. I don't think I don't think that's uh, <laughs> that's a bona fide ninja fighting style. Yeah, thing. it's 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 a it's a this this whole scene the dialogue. Um, there is a season four episode of GI Joe called The Sword. I'm calling it season four. Everyone else is going to call it series two, season two. So this is the second Deke season. These episodes were on in ninety one, ninety two. There's an episode where Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow go do ninja stuff and they're after this fancy sword and i forget who wrote the episode i forget if they're someone who'd written sunbow episodes or if they were new for the deke show but there is this there's this definite purposeful uh whoever whoever wrote this episode or whoever story edited this episode definitely wanted to accentuate the link between storm shadow and snake eyes that if you had only been watching the cartoon and buying the toy, you would have noticed that in, uh, is it 88? That's Storm Shadow version two, that that toy is, he's a Joe, not a Cobra, right? And he has no Cobra symbol on him and doesn't his uh, file card, the file card, the 1988 dossier, uh, it's been rewritten to link the two characters more. Because by this point, Hama's still writing the dossiers and now he's been writing the comic for six years, right? And in 1988, my brother and I were not yet reading the comic. And so we noticed these two things. Oh, Storm Shadow's a good guy. Uh, that, was, that was cool and weird and cool. Okay, so in this episode, Storm Shadow keeps calling Snake Eyes, quote, my ninja brother. And at the time, I appreciated that the writer was going to some length to acknowledge what the Sunbow episodes hadn't or couldn't yet that these two characters are linked, which is so much of the Marvel comics story and backstory, and that that was starting to sort of get out everywhere else. But it's also really conspicuous, right? Because the voice actor who does Storm Shadow in this season four episode is like doing a voice, right? It's like someone doing a like ninja voice. And there's, there's a lot of talk in that episode of like honor and like ninja heritage and it's cool but it's also overdone and forced so i like that episode that episode makes me roll my eyes and i have felt that way here and there when other people have written the snake eyes storm shadow relationship right i felt that way a little bit in gi joe rise of cobra when there's like a flashback during their fight you know it's like them as kids uh, fighting 
right? Am I remembering the, am I remembering this correctly? Was this in the first live action movie? Doesn't the camera like zoom in on Snake Eyes' eye or Storm Shadow's eye, and then they're like little kids fighting? It's like cool, too much. And I think I even remember a little of this in uh, Resolute, the the one off cartoon that was on like card. So anyway, this scene, and and in these four issues, Joe Casey's take on the Storm Shadow Snake Eyes relationship, it feels like it's it's part of what I like about Hama's Hama's Snake Eyes Storm Shadow relationship. To me, it's sort of written with a light touch, even though it is just like baked in and covered with and oozing like loyalty and love and guilt and danger. But something about how he actually writes it, it's sort of with a light touch. And here it starts to be like, you know, like, I feel your anxiety, brother. How many times have we crossed swords? And then there's this like very cool Stefano Caselli wordless panel of, Snake Eyes like jumping to attack, and then a like very cool Stefano Caselli wordless panel of Storm Shadow holding up his sword, I guess deflecting it, and then, you know, another panel, and then there are very few absolutes in this life. We both know this. Each new conflict is a new uncertainty. And it's like No, Storm Shadow doesn't talk like that. It's like speechifying. It's it's sort of like it's yeah. it's conspicuous. Like Storm Shadow knows that he's gotta like take on the role of the serious mystical deadly mistrusted former villain ninja brother it's it's too formal yeah just it ends up just being a bit wooden a bit over melodramatic not not very sort of organic or or feeling kind of real what you know how, how these two two characters known these each other all of this time how they would genuinely interact like two human beings if you know if if this was like the first or second year of gi joe sure Mm. so uh issue six continues destro we talked about some of his oddness uh he's he's on his way to deliver these robot iron grenadiers to the chinese and uh then we have a sequence of duke in south america with this time by, by Caselli, where he's on a boat with this uh, interesting sort of caricatured characters that he's got there on the boat with him. Um, I just want to say one more quick thing about Six, which dovetails with something about... Uh, so in in, um, in issue six, page 14, uh, Colton and the president are talking. And I know we saw the president in issue zero, but this again jumped out at, at me. This is definitely not a Larry Hama G.I. Joe comic because we've never seen the president in a Larry Hama G.I. Joe comic. Uh, actually, is that right? Was Do we see JFK for one panel in uh, 150, right. 152, mm-hmm. the flashback yeah, the, to the Joe the Colton? Joe Colton okay, so, but that yeah. that sort of doesn't count because that's, that's a flashback. And, you know, like in your story, in your movie, in your TV show, in your comic, you decide whether you're sort of always present day and you'll never check in with sort of real people like the president or if you check in with the president is it sort of a made-up president you know like it's like isn't there a made-up president in superman 3 or superman 2 you know and like the marvel cinematic universe has had has never shown the president until this is not a spoiler until like the first episode of um secret invasion 
and and then the Marvel Cinematic Universe gets to right. decide whether it's like actually the real president that you and I know of in the real world or like an actor who sort of looks like them or just some actor who could be like any prototypical anyway sorry i'm getting off on a um <laughs> hama it's not just that hama never did show the president it's that hama doesn't have scenes it's like what's the closest thing to this the closest scene to, to this is uh it's it's um it's a rod wiggum scene in issue 40 something where who's injured hawk someone's in the hospital i think it it might be uh general austin yeah and hawk gets promoted right uh, which which sort of allows for the 1986 figure. And like that's as much as Hama does. In, and then there's the jugglers, which he didn't do a lot. And everyone after him does a lot, right? G.I. Joe is mostly told in Hama's world from the point of the G.I. Joes. Um, okay, so that's, that's one. And then another one at the beginning of issue two, the Joes are in this mini submarine and they bump up against Destro's very cool, very big submarine. And Roadblock has this like James Bond device, this like laser hand laser, so he can cut a hole in the hull and they can sneak in. But if you are in your bathtub and you have uh, a little Joe mini sub and a giant like larger uh, <laughs> mini submarine, and they're both underwater, and you like press them together, if suddenly there's a hole between the two. Water is going to flood into the smaller Joe mini sub. And I don't mind that Joe Casey writes the scene that Roadblock gets to do it. What sticks out at me is that there's no explanation for how they seal the two subs so that water doesn't like at least splash into, much less fill the Joe mini sub and kill them all. And I thought I could really use like one line of dialogue, if not like a Larry Hama, like four panels of explanation. You know, it's like, you know, like someone get the, someone get the inflatable, uh, like expanding, like foam spray to like fill in the seal. Okay, Scarlet. No, it's not Scarlet. She's uh, okay. Shipwreck. Make sure we're steady. Okay, Roadblock. Do you have the laser? Okay, Flint. Hold the so and so in place while Roadblock makes the circle cut. Uh, it's not like this should have been Larry Hama. It's like, I needed a little more from Casey to make this a little more mm. believable. Um, and then another thing like this happened where on pages 16 and 17, in two different scenes, there are a lot of Joes shooting across a distance, not taking cover when they're in a hallway or like in a giant control room. And in that second scene, when the some of the Joes confront Destro and Alexander, they do make their way to cover. They like hide behind a thing, but there's also a panel of them like just out in the open shooting. And uh, that's a good way to get shot. Indeed. Um, I thought that perhaps on this issue, I, put, I mentioned it in passing in the, in, in the intro that possibly there might be some artists, maybe from Tim Seeley on a couple of the sequences, particularly where we've got Scarlet. So, one, where did it strike me the most? It was on this page where Scarlet is fighting against these robots, Iron Grenadiers, to escape, and that like that middle panel, particularly of Scarlet's face. Oh yeah, is this where is this where the top of the pa the top of the page says forward torpedo room? Oh no, okay, no, it's 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 both of these. Uh, right, I see the one. Could be both. Yeah, it could be it could be in more than one. You're place. You're talking about yeah. a wordless page. You're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Yeah, the first panels are jumping in the air, kicking. Yeah. Uh, yes, I noticed that face, and that looked uh, a little bit less like Caselli and a little bit more like someone else. And then, yes, I see the same thing one, two, three pages later uh, when yeah. her eyes are closed and she's gritting her teeth and she's blasting another Iron Grenadier. Maybe this is an issue of time. You know, maybe, you know, we'd heard from Josh Blaylock when we interviewed him that, you know, there were times where Hasra would make Devils do redraw something. And I think the the big example was the cover to issue three. Uh, you know, there may have been smaller things here and there with a panel or two. And that may have been for clarity or it may have been, you know, like, this is too sexy. Don't make it so sexy. More on, more on seven. The... My my comment is um, this chapter with Destro versus Alexander and Wraith mm-hmm. against Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow and Storm and Snake Eyes's sacrifice feels forced. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's sort of the biggest. I mean, like the sort of the overall comment for these four issues for me is I'm starting to disconnect from Joe Casey's take on GI Joe. These comics are feeling a little rocky and it it really sticks out in this issue because as you said before, Destro is acting desperate in a way that feels sudden or out of character. The, the Wraith versus Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow fight feels like it's a little bit of a setup like, oh, the coolest character and the other coolest character and that new cool character are going to fight and it's going to be cool. And I don't remember Snake Eyes or Storm Shadow having any particular beef with Wraith. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. There has been a fight between oh. Wraith and Snake Eyes before. Wraith, okay. Well, uh. maybe I take this one back. Um, but then also, <laughs> you know, like, I don't love, if I keep comparing this to Larry Hama's G.I. Joe, I don't love how Larry Hama killed Snake Eyes in issue 213. I think there's a lot about the scene uh, that doesn't grab me and sort of Overall, I think I wish he hadn't done it, but he did some interesting stuff after it. And I thought his reason for doing it was really interesting, right? And it's sort of the Mm -hmm. like, if I don't, someone else might. And no, I can always tell more stories about him. They will be flashbacks. Um, But here, uh, the sort of the Joes infiltrating the sub feels so... um, it's just sort of missing some stuff. I don't want to say half-baked or under-considered because I think those are much harsher than I than I want to be. But, um, you know, those two things I pointed out before, like sealing the, the, the gap between the two submarines and then not taking cover during fights. Mm. It's like, and then there's this, this sort of cool fight between Wraith and Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow. And then this, this thing where like, no, you have to manually uh, seal the, seal the breach. It's like, Oh, that 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 sort of came out of nowhere at the end, and then, oh oh, Snake Eyes. Oh okay, okay. Oh, he's dead. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It came a bit a bit out of nowhere and a bit quick in the whole choreography of some of it. It was a little bit con- confusing, and and the things that should be exciting had a tendency to kind of make me feel a little underwhelmed. And some of the sense of space and place is is maybe slightly lacking. Like if you think of a submarine, you're thinking of like. You know, very cramped, small, you know, curves, lots of piping, and and some some of this, you know, it, it's drawn like a big, it's it's drawn like it could be in a giant cartoon cobra temple with lots of high ceilings, wide walls, and and you know, square angles, and and just the logistics of 
of if if there's going to be a breach in a sub um you'd want to be able to easily seal off the breached area and you know to to stop it from from you know getting into the rest of the sub and you'd obviously have that mechanism to close the doors on the outside because otherwise you'd get stuck in the room you know when you're designing these things so uh, some of these things it just it 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 kind of falls a little bit flat i do appreciate uh the attempt that casey makes where each scene on the submarine it's specified where this is so control room Hmm. gestures quarters bow interior corridor so he he's keeping track of it and he lets us know where we are Um, but i feel like you know on the second to last page uh when it says destro's quarters and it says boom boom and snake eyes and storm shadow are reacting to this water coming in and i i don't know what we're looking at they're standing in front of a big oval and there's water coming in from the top of the panel and I, i sort of don't know where in the room they are what the room is like um sort of how the whole where the water is 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 shaped and then the next panel um the silhouettes of uh shipwreck scarlet and stalker are looking at this schematic of the submarine which i appreciate but again it's sort of like too much and too little too late you know like what was that hull breach we got to wrap this up turn the page he's dead and then um <laughs> you know the the bottom left panel on this second to last page where snake eyes is grabbing I think like the cord of a ceiling fluorescent light housing uh, while he and Storm Shadow are being pushed along this river of gushing water in this submarine. And, uh, you know, we're seeing like the top of Storm Shadow's head and his his hand. It's, it's, it's not a great composition for this panel. And then Snake Eyes grabs this cord. Storm Shadow gets pushed away. Also, in the final panel of the issue, when Storm Shadow calls him Silent Master, again, it feels too formal. Like, I think I missed the, it may have just been between issue 43 and issue zero, but okay, no one trusts Storm Shadow except for Snake Eyes. And and Snake Eyes is the Silent Master because uh, Master and Apprentice or Master Apprentice 2 or something has sort of established this. And that's cool. But I think this is like, no, they were in Vietnam together. I think this is where he calls him, you know, Snake Eyes, because that's who he is. Not like, like, Professor, you know, or like, you know, like, Your Highness. It's like, no, don't use this title. Use his name. So then for the final issue, uh, I, I, ho- I, have two, I have two very specific notes. Uh, I find the conversation between, in the first two pages, between these three red ninjas is confusing sort of have a hard time telling who's who. Uh, two of them definitely have masks and one of them doesn't. But when you turn the page, I, I, have a, I have a slightly hard time telling sort of who's who and where's where. But on that second to last bottom panel, here's my other example for this episode of where I think Stefano Caselli sometimes doesn't have the strongest panel compositions. I'm not talking about storytelling. I'm talking about just arranging elements within one panel. And this is cutting off that chopper on the top of the panel the way that it is. Uh, and also, I don't know who those four guys are standing around it. So I feel like this page, this panel needed sort of different uh, quote to camera angles. Um, and then sort of getting back to this uh, like 
sort of more general action movie, action comics thing, which I think was, you know, Joe Casey's pitch or marching orders, to be fair. But this doesn't feel like G.I. Joe, where uh, page 13, uh, panel one, um, it's a very cool panel. It's a very cool drawing. Uh, but um, Duke is doing like a, a jump. He's like flipping in the air and he's shooting these two bats while he's in the air jumping upside down and it's like <laughs> it's like no no what is this the matrix you know it's like no duke isn't a ninja um and sort of how like these guys who are on this mission with duke it's like we're supposed to like them cuz there's some dialogue in the previous issue but also they all get killed and then like kamakura's um reaction feels I, I just feel like all the I feel like the emotions have all been heightened in a way that doesn't feel authentic. You know, like when someone dies, you're so sad and you're so angry or, or one or the other. And, you know, Flint and, you know, Stalker and Colton are arguing with each other and Roadblock doesn't trust Storm Shadow. And I, I think it's like, no, this isn't X-Men. This isn't like Chris Claremont's X-Men. It's like, out of the way, psych, me and Genie are walking into town. It's like, how dare you, Wolverine? <laughs> it's like, Iceman, use your powers to fill in that gap so Wolverine can't walk through the doorway. You know, snick, snick. That's the last time you ever tell someone to do something against me, Slim. It's like, no, 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 no. This isn't, you know, like, <laughs> no, like the Joes don't argue. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, like, uh, Gene Roddenberry's rule for Star Trek The Next Generation was that none of the regular recurring characters would have any problems with any of the other recurring characters. And he was not involved in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So the first thing that those producers did was they made, for example, Odo and Quark not like each other and Cisco and Kira not like each other. And that's instant drama, right? It's one of the great things about that show and it makes that show really different from TNG. Um, but I guess it turns out I don't have a lot of appetite for Joe's distrusting and arguing uh, with each other. And then to have Kamakura so upset and like sad and angry. I know he's younger. I know Snake Eyes means everything to him. But this scene feels like melodrama. And I, I don't I don't think that's what I'm looking for in G.I. Joe. I'm going to punch my way to the truth. And uh, I feel like we, we can't go too far without without kind of giving the the Jay Cordray Award for Scarlet crying uh, in the issue. Um, probably more deserved yes. uh, than, than <laughs> normal. Yes, maybe. Because after all, Snake Eyes has died. She's allowed to be upset. Yes. Uh, also, I don't have 213 in front of me, but maybe that's the comparison you know like does anyone tear up in 213 when larry uh excuse me not 213 is it 214 or 215 the the the, the, oh, the issue the, the wordless the wordless issue you, where they, they all yeah there are people that, that cry i think stalker sheds a tear yeah um particularly but you know again to be fair like you know joe casey is not hired to write the blaylock version of gi joe the drawa version of gi joe or the hama version of gi joe and, you know, Devil's Due, to its credit, had hired Hama to write some stories by this point. 
um, and would would again. And, you know, in 2006, five years in, G.I. Joe is competing with on a on a very different playing field than it than it had been um, at Marvel. And so I think Joe Casey's instincts are all good ones. You know, the ones he brings and the ones that he's given. It's like smaller team, bigger stakes, you know, bigger action and and still. In terms of plot, let's let's kind of wrap that up. That that we are left on a cliffhanger of Snake Eyes disappearing from this makeshift morgue. There's the mystery. Dan dan dan. Is he is is he alive? Has he walked away? Is is someone come and taken him? Uh, it's an it's, a, it's an interesting cliff cliffhanger, but um, it, it gives you the sense that probably Snake Eyes isn't going to be left dead for very long. Yeah, there's there's a there's a weird thing when you read this issue because you uh, you turn the this wouldn't happen in the collection, the trade paperback collections. But when you turn turn from page 13 to 14 uh, in issue eight, you go from Duke's mission uh, in in the south to this one page ad that has a, a blue flag that's frayed. And uh, I, I, I sort of don't know how to describe this ad. Um, it's a flag, but it's been sort of superimposed over a blown up background detail of some random panel where you see some buildings. And then there's this uh, black triangle that as a compositional graphical element that takes up like the right quarter of uh, the image. And then on the bottom, there's a logo for G.I. Joe America's Elite. And I feel like this is an ad that someone designed and when they were 60% done, it got printed because uh, it sort of reminds me of the cover to Superman 75, the, the death of Superman issue from 1992 drawn by Dan Jorgens and Brett Breeding where Superman's cape uh, is like stuck into a, like a pole sticking out of the ground, some rubble and there's some sad silhouetted people behind it. And you see some like silhouetted buildings and, and it's like the death of Superman, you know, from that actual uh, issue. So it, compositionally, it looks a little like that because the white uh, diagonal sort of looks like a like a flagpole or like a stick coming out of the ground. But I also feel like this ad wanted some copy at the top, you know, like a soldier falls dot 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 and things will never be the same again. Joe Casey's. Joe Casey's just getting started, you know, read it monthly in, and then on the bottom, G.I. Joe, America's Elite. So I like this ad. I don't understand it. And it doesn't look finished. Yeah, I think it's meant to be a bit of a a teaser trailer for something to come. And then in future ads, it becomes clearer. So so I'd say this will be revisited. Okay. Because um, uh, in, in the letters page of one of these issues... Uh, one of the answers is it's like we're heading to issue thirteen, and I thought, what is that? And then I remembered, oh right, issue thirteen was like a twenty-five cent issue or something. I know, I know that's not true, but we'll get there. It's like that was like a big thing or a reset or like an event. That was like that sort of the apex of Joe Casey's run, but also this like one sentence in the letters page is like too oblique of a tease and i thought oh. <laughs> this is in issue seven 
the letters page is two pages and on the second of them just above the preview cover for the next issue issue eight with the white storm shadow uh next issue the shocks continue in gi joe uh, america's elite number eight the unbelievable events of this issue are followed with next issue's gruesome theft a trusted ally returns as a team member leaves the joes face a dark dark future plus duke's secret mission takes an interesting twist the countdown to number 13 begins dot 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 and i thought oh this is issue seven it's like I think I need a little like <laughs> this isn't like it's it's not like it's issue 92 it's like the countdown to 100 begins like oh because 13 is unlucky yeah. or that that was the teaser advert the countdown to 13 they just they didn't have any text to explain it <laughs> um, and, and then this letter page is also saying that issue 8 has a gruesome theft so it's kind of a spoiler <laughs> it's explaining that oh, the, yeah that the disappearance of uh snake eyes is actually a gruesome theft right there we go so right. a bit more of a clue as to to what's going on one of my highlights from these four issues was actually uh a letter in issue eight from jeremy newton who seemed to sum up kind of what was going on quite quite well he says, Dear Joes, looking back on the series so far, it seems to be the common theme of the book has been loyalty. And I've, I've seen that discussed before, that, that a big theme of G.I. Joe is loyalty. Joe's loyalty to, to one another, etc. Um, Cobra disloyalty. Anyway, Storm Shadow's loyalty has been questioned, but it seems to lie with Snake Eyes. Duke's loyalty is apparently with Hawk. Stalker seems to be loyal to, loyal to Snake Eyes and Scarlet. The interesting thing is that no one seems to be especially loyal to Colton. Consequently, Colton does not seem to trust his own team either. Flint and Storm Shadow seem to be loose cannons, and Duke, Snake Eyes, and Scarlet have been absent for extended amounts of time. Colton almost seems powerless, despite being the leader of the team. Uh, I thought, yeah, just uh, an interesting, insightful uh, discussion of some of the the dynamics of uh, of the team. Hmm. Something nice, uh, something interesting happens in the letters page of issue seven that uh, there's a letter from Thomas Wheeler, who slightly famously wrote a letter to uh, every month during the Marvel run and had several published. And I think gets called out in the letters page of the final issue and has shown up once or twice before in the Devil's Do letters pages and uh, issue seven. Uh, in the letters page has a full data disc profile of a real life person, Joseph uh, Bottler, whose code name is Biggest Fan. Um, uh, the copy on the bottom of the previous page says, remember last summer's Biggest Fan Contest? After many, many submissions and a lot of debate here in the office, we finally arrived at our lucky winner, Joe Bottler of Reno, Nevada. Uh, and so there's this... Um, there's a, a a photo of him that looks like it's been uh, blown up and maybe slightly run through the Photoshop watercolor filter um, of him in a um, blue purple martial arts uniform uh, kicking, and there's a there's a headshot on the left with his file name and his specialties, uh, and then on the bottom under the the full figure photo of him, there's a, a photo of him and his three sons in front of many many martial arts awards, and there's this profile of this real life person a gi joe fan who submitted uh himself to this contest which i had forgotten about um and 
Uh, and so they do a slight biography of him in this profile, but also weave it into the G.I. Joe story where the, the third paragraph starts with, uh, during this time, reports of G.I. Joe exploits encouraged Bottler. And then like he's brought onto the team, basically. And so it's this sort of real world, sort of G.I. Joe fantasy um, combination. And it's uh, it's cool. Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. I had a I had an error detected. Should we quickly talk about I that? I have two. And then I also wanted to point out, um, in issue seven, there is an ad. There's a full page ad for a magazine called Lo-Fi Comics and Entertainment. And the bottom shows one, two, three, four, five, six, seven covers, which makes me think, this magazine had been around for a while or was going to be around for a while. And the bottom of the ad, uh, it's a, it's sort of a, uh, there's a cool drawing that looks like it's drawn by Udon. And it looks like it could be uh, a fighting game, a game based on an anime property that I don't know. But uh, what's striking to me about the ad is that the very top of it says Devils Do Publishing Presents. But then on the bottom, it says your number one source for indie comics and entertainment, lofimagazine.com. And it's published by Urban Robot. And this is not something that I've heard of or seen at comic stores or in back issue bins. But I just wanted to say I've always been interested when reading old comics in what else is going on at that time. You know, if I'm reading an issue of G.I. Joe, I sort of wonder, oh, what was happening this month in Transformers? Or what was happening this month in X-Men? Or I love reading the Marvel bullpens bulletins page where Jim Shooter or Stan Lee, you know, talks about like convention season or like, you know, uh, there's going to be a new Incredible Hulk TV movie or something like that. Um, And particularly in the 90s and 2000s, some of it is like Wizard Magazine hero illustrated and the other magazines that tried to be like wizard that didn't stick around and um uh i think lo-fi i don't think it lasted more than four issues but i'm intrigued by it because devils do seem somehow involved like maybe they helped package it or maybe they published it and maybe urban robot publications is uh devils do uh and also because um cover to issue Volume two, number one, uh, has a drawing of snake eyes on it. And this is published October 2005. And then the cover to volume two, issue three, uh, has a a black harvest, which is, I think, something else that um, uh, Devil's Do was publishing. So I don't know anything more about this, but I mean, I'm just intrigued by it, sort of for for, like what else was happening. Uh, Yes. So. Um, Error Detected was for me in issue six, which was the alternating parting of the hair for the president, which I think what they did was they took a, a stat of one the first panel that he was in, uh, copied it into the third panel, and to just mix it up a little bit, they flipped it, but that also meant that his parting flipped at the same time. That was also... One of my two uh, error detecteds. Yes. Uh, the other one is that um, uh, same issue, page 15. Within a word, uh, the, the letter I is spelled both without serifs and also with serifs. And 
if you're new to the show and you haven't heard me say this before, uh, a, a, a letter or a graphic designer told me that um, when you're when you the word I like I and me and mine, the word I in comics should have serifs. But if you're spelling a word like interim or inside or mine, uh, the I should not have serifs. Uh, and then I think this happens again on, in the following issue. And it's it's pretty nitpicky, but that's how I read my comics. Yeah, I think I'm done. Should we um should we give it a score? Yo, cola, not grape soda. It's yo, Joey. So, uh, I think I think it's clear this this is you know there there are there are things to enjoy in here still. Um, the art is nice. Uh, the the story is exciting, but ne- not necessarily completely executed in the way that readers of GI Joe we would expect or hope. So so it was it was nice to re you know read it back after after not having read this uh, for for many years. But um, I think I'm probably in the same place that I read it at the time, which was feeling a little bit um, disappointed and anxious that that perhaps um, perhaps the, the 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 relaunch wasn't quite going in the uh, in the direction that I was hoping for. So mm, I don't know. I'll give it a six. Yeah, I was thinking something similar, five or six. Um, uh, I get, I guess, six because it's, you know, it's handsome art and exciting. Five because it's starting to not be GI Joe. So, five. Okay. So, so that's just done with uh, with America's Elite five through seven. Uh, next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, uh, we've we've got various things in parallel that I think we can be looking at. There is the Zartan story from the the back of these books that we've skipped that we'll we'll circle back and have a look at. There's Special Missions Manhattan, which is being advertised in the pages of these issues, which was being published at that time. So we will definitely be taking a look at that. Uh, And then we shall also be uh, covering the next few issues of Devil's Due America's Elite. So we'll be covering... Uh, issues 9 through 12 at some point very soon as well and uh, doubtless we'll be uh, looking at other bits and pieces G.I. Joe related as well so all that to come so Tim where can people find you when you are not talking to me about G.I. Joe comics video essays from my creative partners and I at our YouTube channel, Atomic Abe Productions. My brick and mortar comic book store in Somerville, Massachusetts is Hub Comics. And I write about G.I. Joe at a realamericanbook.com. Excellent stuff. You can find more about Talking Joe at the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has links to all of those places. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingjoe. So a big thanks to all our backers, Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, Rob, Brian and Shane. 
who are all getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. And that is us done for now. But remember that... Nobody Beats Talking Joe! An international podcast! Laters! But you see, there, there are two different versions of that jingle. There's the one that starts high, which I was trying to do for Devil's Do, and then there's one that goes high, which I was trying to do for IDW. And I've gotten mixed up a few times. Right, okay. Do, do, can you do them again just for uh, just for comparison? Okay, so this would be for Hama. Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast! And then Devil's Do is, Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast! This is a big difference. Yeah. First couple of notes. Yeah, yeah. It's the the hammer is is a build, and and, and Devil's Due is it starts at eleven and continues through <laughs> at eleven. Good stuff.